Chapter 17 of the Story of Young Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of Young Abraham Lincoln by Wayne Whipple. Chapter 17. What made the difference between Abraham Lincoln and his stepbrother? These letters show the wide difference between the real lives of two boys brought up in the same surroundings and under similar conditions. The advantages were in John Johnson's favor. He and Dennis Hanks never rose above the lower level of poverty and ignorance. John was looked down upon by the poor illiterates around him as a lazy, good-for-nothing fellow, and Dennis Hanks was known to be careless about telling the truth. In speaking of the early life of Abe's father and mother, Dennis threw in the remark that the Hanks were some smarter than the Lincolns. It was not smartness that made Abe Lincoln grow to be a greater man than Dennis Hanks. There are men in Springfield today who say there were a dozen smarter men in this town than Mr. Lincoln when he happened to be nominated, and peculiar conditions prevailing at that time brought about his election to the presidency. True greatness is made of goodness rather than smartness. Abraham Lincoln was honest with himself while a boy and a man, and it was Honest Abe who became President of the United States. The people loved him for his big heart, because he loved them more than he loved himself, and they knew it. In his second inaugural address as President, he used this expression, With malice toward none, with charity for all. This was not a new thought, but it was full of meaning to the country, because little Abe Lincoln had lived that idea all his life, with his own family, his friends, acquaintances, and employers. He became the most beloved man in the world, in his own or any other time, because he himself loved everybody. Miss Crawford, the wife of Old Blue Nose, used to laugh at the very idea of Abe Lincoln ever becoming president. Lincoln often said to her, I'll get ready and the time will come. He got ready in his father's log hut, and when the door of opportunity opened, he walked right into the White House. He made himself at home there, because he had only to go on in the same way after he became the servant of the people, that he had followed when he was old Blue Nose's hired boy and man, one partner in the White House, the other in the poorhouse. Then there was William H. Herndon, known to the world only because he happened to be Lincoln's law partner. His advantages were superior to Lincoln's, and far more than that, he had his great partner's help to push him forward and upward. But poor Billy had an unfortunate appetite. He could not deny himself, though it always made him ashamed and miserable. It dragged him down, down from the president's partner to the gutter. That was not all. When he asked his old partner to give him a government appointment, which he had for years been making himself wholly unworthy to fill, President Lincoln, much as he had loved Billy all along, could not give it to him. It grieved Mr. Lincoln's great heart to refuse Billy anything. But Hurden did not blame himself for all that. He spent the rest of his wretched life in bitterness and spite, avenging himself on his noble benefactor by putting untruths into the life of Lincoln. He was able to write because Abraham Lincoln, against the advice of his wife and friends, had insisted on keeping him close to his heart. It is a terrible thing, that spirit of spite, 
Among many good and true things he had to say about his fatherly law partner, he poisoned the good name of Abraham Lincoln in the minds of millions by writing stealthy slander about Lincoln's mother and wife and made many people believe that the most religious of men at heart was an infidel, because he himself was one. That Mr. Lincoln sometimes acted from unworthy and unpatriotic motives, and that he failed to come to his own wedding. If these things had been true, it would have been wrong to publish them to the prejudice of a great man's good name. Then how much more wicked to invent and spread broadcast falsehoods which hurt the heart and injure the mind of the whole world, just to spite the memory of the best friend a man ever had. The fate of the firm of Lincoln and Herdon shows in a striking way how the world looks upon the heart that hates and the heart that loves. For the hateful junior partner died miserably in an almshouse, but the senior was crowned with immortal martyrdom in the White House. The Rival for Love and Honors Stephen A. Douglas, the Little Giant, who had been a rival for the hand of the fascinating Mary Todd, was also Lincoln's chief opponent in politics. Douglas was small and brilliant. Used to society's ways, he seemed always to keep ahead of his tall, uncouth, plodding competitor. After going to Congress, Mr. Lincoln was encouraged to aspire even higher. So, ten years later, he became a candidate for the Senate. Slavery was then the burning question and Douglas seemed naturally to fall upon the opposite side, favoring and justifying it in every way he could. Douglas was then a member of the Senate, but the opposing party nominated Lincoln to succeed him, while the little giant had been renominated to succeed himself. Douglas sneered at his tall opponent, trying to damn him with faint praise, by referring to him as a kind, amiable, and intelligent gentleman. Mr. Lincoln challenged the senator to discuss the issues of the hour in a series of debates. Douglas was forced, very much against his will, to accept, and the debates took place in seven towns scattered over the state of Illinois from August 21st to October 15th, 1858. Lincoln had announced his belief that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Therefore, the United States could not exist half-slave and half-free. The little giant drove from place to place in great style, driving with an escort of influential friends. These discussions, known in history as the Lincoln-Douglas debates, rose to national importance while they were in progress by attracting the attention in the newspapers of voters all over the country. They were attended on an average by 10,000 persons each, both men accompanied by bands and people carrying banners, and what Mr. Lincoln called fizzle gigs and fireworks. Some of the banners were humorous. Abe the Giant Killer was one. Another read, Westward the Star of Empire Takes Its Way. The girls link on to Lincoln. Their mothers were for clay. At the first debate, Lincoln took off his linen duster and handing it to a bystander said, Hold my coat while I stone Stephen. In the course of these debates, Lincoln proponed questions for Mr. Douglas to answer. Brilliant as the little giant was, he was not shrewd enough to defend himself from the shaft of his opponent's wit and logic. So he fell into Lincoln's trap. If he does that, said Lincoln, he may be senator, but he can never be president. I am after larger game. The Battle of 1860 is worth a hundred of this. This prophecy proved true.
End of chapter 17.